Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Global civilization is clearly on the edge of failure. What are you really afraid of? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? The moral to be drawn from this nightmare situation is a simple one. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. More than machinery, we need humanity. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labeled impractical. Our birth, our death, our being in the moment, these are mysteries. They are doorways opening on to unimaginable vistas of self-exploration. The contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. The society is trying to cure itself by an archaic revival. What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? The world is not an unsolved problem for scientists or sociologists. The world is a living mystery. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Welcome to Death in the Garden. This podcast seeks to explore the mythologies of our time in an era of converging crises. The interviews you will hear on this podcast are from our upcoming film. We are questioning the cultural assumptions about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. He hates doing intros with me. Oh, you didn't get that. Jake just told me how much he hates doing intros with me. <laughs> I hate doing them with her and with myself. Doing intros kind of sucks because it feels really unnatural and like performative, and that's not really kind of what we're going for. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Maybe we're going to lighten it up a little bit because this is a pretty dark episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good interview and conversation that we had with Helena Norberg-Hodge. I think you're really going to like this one. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And Helena is a linguist. She's an author and filmmaker, and she runs the nonprofit Local Futures, which is one of the primary pioneering forces behind the world localization movement, which is really important to us, particularly since that's sort of one of the things that we've come to a conclusion with is like, damn, the global system is really, really messing up the whole world. And enslaving people and making people really depressed and suicidal and fucked up. And so it's really amazing that there's an organization that's like really trying to figure out how to implement action to support these like local movements that are already on the ground, like peasant farmer movements and all of these sort of coalitions that are already burgeoning. But on the other side, having the tools to be able to resist and create a alternative economy, alternative way of thinking about things. And yeah, it's just a really great conversation. Yeah, and for anybody interested in her work or a lot of what started her work off, she has this great documentary that I think you can find on YouTube called Ancient Futures about her time with the Ladakh people in Tibet. It was when Tibet first opened up in the 70s, 60s uh, for the first time, and the Western influences began to pour into the country, and she documented and experienced firsthand 
globalization coming into a new part of the world and how it affected uh, a culture that had been there for a very long time and had, had found very sustainable and balanced life ways and how everything was just thrown about and how drastically it changed that society and culture. And so I really encourage you to find that that little documentary on YouTube. It's really well done. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is like, it's not enough to sort of assess the current situation and try to imagine the way forward. We really have to understand wh how we got here. And how, there's a lot of context behind the global system that we live in. And without that understanding, we're kind of shooting in the dark and we're kind of running into this these issues blind. And so being able to like pull back, peel back the layers and understand how this global system works contextually today, but also where it came from and the ways that it is manipulated and influenced certain communities and spread throughout the world, you know, is it's imperative for us to understand in order to actually implement something like localization. And, you know, one of the things that Helena says right off the bat, which I just want to emphasize here, is that, you know, this is something we've been saying a lot, is like, whether we like it or not, we live in a time where we have to have a really incredibly, almost like impossibly global perspective, while also having a local perspective. We have to have both because otherwise otherwise we're going to be missing tons of information and having a lot of blind spots. And so... Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of... What's that line? It's like, to save the world, start in your neighborhood, something like that, which is true, but it's, you know, like Marin's saying, it's, it's the time when we can do just that is gone because the forces that affect you on a local scale are the same things that are affecting everybody all over the world. So to truly, and that's the conundrum that we talk about with Helena, is that to to have a local future, to have this small scale thing, we do have to deconstruct really large scale problems, which is very hard to do, but that does have to be done. And, you know, I think she says it in this podcast that she, that, you know, environmentalists need to travel, even in this age of carbon pollution and global warming, it's really important that we understand how the world works because things all the way across the world affect you because we are being put under the same system economically and politically. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's like, you know, the the way that the elites talk about carbon footprints and things like that and how, you know, you shouldn't travel because of X, Y, Z. And meanwhile, they're going to travel as often as they want, like without any kind of qualms about that. And uh, people who care need to understand that the things, the decisions that are being made in Washington, for example, have global impacts. And if we don't go out and see what those global impacts might potentially be, like the the corporations are not going to be holding themselves accountable. But people who care can. And if you're if you're feeling held back because you have this sort of impossible idea that we can just opt out and change things. Like it, it, it has to be both. Like it, it's, it's, it's this sort of conundrum. It's this paradox of like, yes, we need to opt out as much as we can, but also we have to be utilizing these tools to get the message out. And that's what Helena says in this is like, you know, people, people have messaged us before and been like, you know, how do you sort of reconcile the fact that you're using all of this technology to spread this message? And it's like, yeah, it's kind of a paradox. It's it's an uncomfortable paradox. Yeah, and and we have to understand if we are people who care about the world and want to change things, we have to understand how big the problem is. Is and if you don't travel and if you don't see the planet, you you don't have a reference for what we're actually facing here. I mean, there was a I 
I don't know if I've talked about here on the podcast, but I know I have with Marin is there was a moment when I was traveling like seven years ago and I had a layover in um, Singapore. Was it Singapore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Singapore. And Singapore is essentially just a port country. The whole economy is just like this one port and it's massive. And when you fly into this port country on the horizon for about 20 minutes in 360 degrees, you just see thousands and thousands and thousands of cargo ships. Just all you see is cargo ships. And that is one port. And it was in that moment I understood the predicament we are in. We are not going to die because of CO2. We are going to die because of this megalithic infrastructure of global economics. And until you feel that, until you see that, until you truly, viscerally understand the scale of the problem, you're still going to think that plastic-free Mondays or Fridays or whatever it is 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 good enough or is a good start. It's yeah. It's so beyond what the problem is, and it's very important that we understand how big of a problem this is. And traveling and understanding on a global scale can do that. And it can really change and inform how we view and look at problems because we have gone very, 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 very deep into this global system. Yep. And this podcast is a really great primer, I think. I think, you know, Helen is someone who we look forward to meeting in person and we want to talk with her more. And we also want to try to have her in the film because this is just a Zoom interview. And, you know, this is a really dense podcast. It's really intense. Um, but I think it's so, so, so important. You know, she talks a bit about like the insane trade that we have going where, you know, like in the United States, for example, it's like we import as much soy as we export. And it's like, why the fuck? Like why? You know, it's like but but it's all just about making money. And it's like but there's so many there's so many layers to this and so many things that we have to we have to really start breaking down um, and start questioning. And if we don't, then we end up with these like technotopian solutions that really just create more of the same problem. And so we're going to stop blabbing about that because this podcast is really great and it's it's long and we really fleshed out a lot of wonderful ideas with Helena. And I think we'll have more interviews coming with her too because we're going to be going to an event or a conference she's putting on in September. So there'll be more of this type of uh, conversation coming. Yeah, yeah. And we want to keep we want to keep uh, highlighting conversations like this. Um, but yeah, so as far as like housekeeping goes, we are about to leave. So if we sound a little tired, it's because we've been up and we didn't get a lot of sleep last night because we're flying out today, but we're going to be gone for a couple weeks. We're going to Portugal. If anybody is interested in meeting up with us who lives in Portugal, we would love it. We're going to take a little bit of a vacation after doing this job with the Savory Institute. And then yeah. before that, we're going to Texas. We're flying to Texas today to go to the what? Force of Nature. What, what Good Shall what I Do? What Good Shall I Do event. Yeah, we're going to go film our friend Daniel. Our good friend Daniel, who you know, Daniel Griffith, is giving the keynote, I believe. Yep. So we're going to go film him and yeah. see that wonderful batch of people. And then, yeah, fly to Portugal. Yeah, yeah, it'll be great. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be meeting, like, Kate Kavanaugh there, too, who we've had on the podcast and some others, which is it's going to be cool to meet some of these people in person. But yeah. so, yeah, things are going well here on the death in the garden side of things. Before we go, I'm going to have Marin grab the microphone and hold it up. I have a cat in my lap and she's purring and maybe the purring can flow into the conversation. Hi, what do you think? Thank you so much for talking with us. 
it's a quite an honor to be able to have this conversation and share it with our audience. So thank you so much. If you would be able to just begin for us with your journey to from basically your whole life when you moved with in with the Ladakhis in India, and then what led you now to being the creator and founder of Local Futures, which is an incredible organization that's doing a lot of work. And our friend Jorgen has this wonderful saying that says there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. And I really feel that there's so many things about what you're talking about and what your organization has been talking about for decades, that it's like now is the time and there's so many people coming online. But I would just love to hear your experience with Ladakh and just who you are and how you became the person that you are today. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Sweden, but I had parents who were, my father was half English, my mother was half German. They both had grown up in Sweden. Um, but I had um, cousins and relatives in England and Germany. And so I was already fairly early on a bit globalized, you might say. And I ended up uh, studying in all, all those three countries, also in America. I ended up very interested in really in learning other worldviews and getting to know other cultures. So I think this was an important part of the background. Um, that meant that I, yeah, I was interested in learning languages, but more to understand another way to view the world. Because I had found, having grown up in Sweden, that there was quite a lot of prejudice against Germany after the war, especially also in England. So when I went off to university and studied in Germany, I was so amazed to actually find a very holistic worldview, a much more, in a way, a deeper ecological sensitivity, and I became bit of an ambassador, even in my own family, for the sort of German side. And um, and then later on, I, I end up working as a linguist in Paris, and I'm 29 or 30 years old, and I've actually traveled quite a lot. You know, I've been, I've, I had encountered the Zapatista groups in San Cristobal de las Casas, I've been very very fascinated and interested in them, but I didn't stay long enough to really get to know them. But I'd also traveled to, you know, parts of Africa and so on. And I was quite settled and not really wanting to travel. So when I was invited to join this documentary film team to go to a place called Ladakh, that I'd never heard of, at first I hesitated, but then um, I actually spoke to my German grandfather and he said, oh, no, you must go there. This is fascinating culture. So I decided to go thinking I'm going to be there for six weeks. And I guess this background of seeing other worldviews enabled me very, very quickly at this very sensitive point when Ladakh was suddenly being thrown open to the outside world, having sealed off had not been influenced by missionaries in any significant way. They'd been able to convert a few orphans, and there had actually been a majority Buddhist culture, really Tibetan. The Dalai Lama was the spiritual head. It's up on the Tibetan plateau. Uh, but this part of Tibet belonged politically to India, and it had suddenly been thrown open. And I get to learn the language very quickly because I was a linguist, but also I think very importantly, dive into that culture and that worldview. 
And that uh, enabled me to catch a moment when people felt completely at ease with who they were. And there was such an equanimity, when there was such a, uh, just a sense of, of calmness and, and, um, and not just acceptance of self, but acceptance of other, acceptance of change. And this flowing way of being was enchanting, you know, and people had smiles, you know, like the Dalai Lama, most people exuded that sort of remarkable joy, sense of humor, and I just fell in love with the people virtually overnight. And um, when the filming was finished, it was for a German documentary. Um, and I, by that time, had learned enough of the language and I met a professor from the US of London and, and he said, you know, I could do a PhD on the language. So I remained when the film team left. And from then, basically over more than 40 years, I was there for a good part of the year in the early days. And the first time I went, I actually didn't go back to the West until two years later. And by that time, very, you know, with, you know, deep, a deep sort of um, recognition that I had lived in a way that was so suited, so suited my own well-being and where there was no trace of cancer, of heart disease, obesity, nor was there, nor was there hunger. Um, and at the same time as I went back, I found out that my mother was dying of cancer. And that really, I think, is partly what launched me into, uh, I'm amazed it's bringing tears to my eyes because it is such a long time ago. And she was, you know, my dearest sort of friend and sister. Um, but um, yeah, and so this conviction that really we have a, a thing called progress and this thing called development that's bringing in toxic chemicals that no one needs um, to actually see that, you know, they were literally at that time starting to promote DDT, which had been outlawed in the West. And I could see that the local people had no idea of the long-term consequences of DDT. And I think in a way that sums up why I believe that the main thing we're facing is blindness about a globalized system that for hundreds of years has been interfering with social relationships and in ecological systems and with, with most people having no idea what they were being subjected to. And, and why is that? That's the two fundamental lessons, which I hope we can come back to, for me from this whole experience, was that we've had this combination of narrow specialized thinking and far too localized thinking. Actually, when it comes to understanding the global system, we need to have much more global understanding. When it comes to learning how to live, we need much deeper local knowledge. But today we need both uh, to really understand what's going on. And while we're faced with multiple crises that just seem to be escalating moment by moment. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I just think is 
so complex and important that that I always try to convey to people, but that's always really challenging is that we have to think in these ways that are almost impossible. It's it's almost beyond our ability as as homo sapiens to try to understand the global and local complexities that we need to be able to understand in order to move forward. Um, but maybe maybe we could start a little bit with just like how how would you describe the difference between globalization and localism and lo and localization and like how how do we parse these things out what are the important things that we need to know about both in order to move forward yeah well first of all the most important thing here is for us to realize that when the modern economies was launched on the world it was launched by global elites that benefited from genocide, from slavery, whose values were overtly misogynist, overtly anti-nature. You can read you can read it in their statement. And that included Descartes talking about torturing nature for her secrets. We have to look critically and skeptically at this combination of a knowledge system and an economic system, which was then imposed on the rest of the world. And if we look at the historical roots, we need to recognize also that Christianity had been moving in a direction that was linked to a patriarchal power system conquering the world. And, and you know, we were, we're talking about cultures, large number of cultures around the world having been, in, you know, invaded with a worldview that made them feel inferior. And there were already tools that were being used from Europe that gave a certain superiority and allowed this sort of conquering of the world. But I, I would say that the most important sort of realization here is to understand that, let's also say, I think we need to recognize that civilization is part of the problem. Civilizations have generally been expansive beyond cultural boundaries, to conquer others, to subjugate others. So let's agree, if we believe in equality, if we believe in justice, then we don't really approve of the civilizational project. Now, that, um, yeah, and that's very important too, because there are many people in the West who now are thinking of an ecological civilization. And I'm trying to say to some of my friends, like that, let's, let's think more in terms of a plurality of ecological cultures. And, and with their own distinct identities adapted to their own ecosystems and so on. So <clears throat> the globalization that I'm talking about started with those deep roots. And, um, and of course, there are people who've spoken about this as being only in the light of what happened to subjugate women. So there are other deeper roots that can go back to what Maria Gumbutas talks about, you know, and, and apparently more recent archeological evidence that we had more feminine goddess-oriented cultures that were more peaceful. All of that, I think, is helpful to build up a picture, but I think it's really important that we don't get caught in that earlier history and only you know, talk about men and women. We need a truly systemic understanding and we need to be looking at that global system. And we need to recognize that the slavery 
meant forcing people away from diversified production for their own needs. It was never self-reliance, it was community reliance, but it was reliance on the natural resources to start by providing for your needs and then trade where it made sense to your community and your needs. And so we're talking about human scale, slower, adapted ways with local knowledge systems. And this is essentially what we need to move towards as we localize. So we are talking in local futures about understanding that we've had a process of globalization that goes back a long time. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that also. And what we now urgently, absolutely need is to shift towards localizing. But I'm not here to prescribe what that local is going to look like in any place on this earth. I feel so empowered by understanding that this is truly about respect for life, the principle of diversity, a fact of life. Every moment, every cell in our bodies and every tree is alive and unique and alive means changing. So that adaptation is, of course, necessary. And when we realize that we've had, as this global system grew from slavery, genocide, misogyny, it was supported by an economic ideology, which decided that comparative advantage was a fundamental principle. And that was, oh, no, no, it doesn't make sense for you to produce a range of things when you can produce something much more easily that suits your climate and ecosystem, focus on that, specialize, produce that for trade. So I would say in many ways, specialized production, monocultural production for export is the enemy. We, we need to look at the structures that have so worked against us. We don't need to demonize particular people, particular cultures, governments, corporations, let's look at these structures that have so clearly been destructive and let's look at them honestly. And um, with this imposition of comparative advantage, you know, later on comes the forceful um, imposition of you are going to be open to a free market. And by the time of the Second World War, we have at the end of the Second World War, we have governments sitting around the table at Bretton Woods, setting up the IMF, the World Bank, and the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. All of this is done with the help of many idealistic people, many um, from civic society, government, even in business, thinking, yeah, yeah, what we're trying to do is to ensure that all economic activity is integrated. In the economic union, the European Economic Union, which is not the good thing that people think it is, the economic union in Europe was pushed by big business for the same reasons to integrate and harmonize. Now, what that meant was big business doesn't tolerate diversity. It's inefficient to have different languages, people driving on left and right, different ways of doing things. 
No, no, we want to integrate to create a union that can compete with America. Uh, and this is why, yeah, actually, I think I will say this, you can always edit. <laughs> this is why also in Scandinavia, we had very um, strong and clear movements from people who were ecologically minded, democratically minded, culturally aware, and a stronger position to go into the EU. And by the way, that opposition, which was very clearly undermined with the help of government and the money that big business already had to influence the media, to make sure that in Sweden, for instance, we had a no newspaper, no to the EU, which was this tiny format, you know, one sort of new publication, and then all the rest of the mainstream papers, you know, big format, normal paper, all pro, and in very insidious ways, you know, making people feel that you're, you know, you're isolationist, you don't care about others. Now, these are in cultures where, like in Norway and Sweden, almost everyone was supporting an, a child in Africa or huge idealism and concern, often misguided, but very clearly concerned about the rest of the world. And yet this sort of insidious ways of entering the discourse and thinking undermine that. And I think it's important while I talk about that to say that Brexit in the UK was a completely different phenomenon. You know, I was so torn for a while because um, we are British citizens. My husband is British and we've, we've been living there for a lot of the last 40 years. And um, it was, yeah, I was really torn, but, you know, it was essentially the entire message to the English population. It wasn't about ecological consequences. It wasn't about democracy. It was all about where can we get a better trade deal with Europe or with America, Europe or America. And so the attempt to move away from Europe was actually essentially in the wrong direction because the EU, because of a relative degree of integrity of smaller nation states, where there was still the potential for more democratic process, and especially in Scandinavia, where science and the media had not yet been so corporatized, um, the you know EU would be a better option, you know, than joining with America. So it's, it's um, what I'm saying here is incredibly important for people to try to think about, because I'm hoping people will realize this completely transcends the left and right discourse that we've been delivered. It's about, we're talking here about the absolute um, conflict between a top-down econometric way of thinking, way of doing things, which cannot tolerate diversity, and it, which has been systematically imposing monoculture. And, and it's particularly when you look at, at what's happened to agriculture that this entire difference between global and local becomes so much clearer. Um, but I better pause and see if you have. This is great. Questions. 
That thank you so much. And that it you know what it was making me think, and this is something that we have been talking about so much recently and that we've identified because when we began investigating these things a number of years ago, we got really into the concepts of regenerative agriculture and so, you know, doing agriculture differently. But what we have seen time and again over the past few years is that if you be if you use the same thinking that caused problems in the first place. Hello, our cat has joined the conversation. <laughs> If you use the same thinking to address problems, you're going to come up with a system that has the same problems. And so on a smaller scale, what we've seen happening in the Regen movement is that it's used the same economic concepts to grow and distribute food that maybe on some degree is a slightly better for the soil, but ultimately is enhancing and scaffolding the very thing, the very reason why the soil is dead in the first place. Exactly. And so you know, drawing to this economic sphere and really looking at how the economy works, you've already began to kind of define it. But if there were some, I guess, latent assumptions that you think that this economic worldview that has taken over the world, do you think there are in it assumptions about um, what nature is, what life is, what uh, human purpose is? is? Is the economy in its own way trying is a a facet of human culture that is telling a specific story, if that makes any sense. Well, you see, I, I, don't, I don't think of the economy now as being a facet of human culture. I, I think we need to recognize that it's a system that is so vast. So the, the economy, the economy is a system that is so vast that the majority of proponents of economic growth do not understand what they're doing. They're adhering to ideas about the need for growth, about the, this idea that things are gonna collapse. And worse than that, I had the chance to speak to, you know, a, a double or triple Nobel Prize winning economist at an economic forum at the EU a few years ago. And when I said to him and to the head of finance in the EU and someone from Unilever, Finite governments are deregulating global banks and corporations. They're subsidizing their infrastructure. They're even subsidizing them to advertise abroad. In the meanwhile, every business and every activity, including government activities, are subject to intense regulations and heavy taxation, more and more bureaucracy. This is the main reason why the world is facing, you know, crisis after crisis. We need to change that. Then this, you know, Nobel Prize in Economist said, do you really think we could do that in a democracy? What those words say is that he believes that it's the population, it's the voter that's pushing governments to do this. Well, no voter is pushing governments to subsidize global corporations. No voter would want them to be favoring what are de facto monopolies that are actually giving our governments their marching orders. We've now been told regularly they're too big to fail. And we're right now facing other crises. And we urgently, if it's, I'm glad you think it's an idea whose time has come because 
one of the main ideas is let's please look at why we have this crisis. Let's look at why in every country the gap between rich and poor is skyrocketing in this obscene way. Let's not just point the finger at the billionaires and think that, you know, we get rid of them and things will be fine. Let's ask, how is this possible? Why is it happening? And let's look at it honestly. And we need to do that by going to alternative channels like your podcast and be aware that we need a much more global understanding. We've got to be willing to say, I get it. The left and right politics has become a theater. I need to look behind that. And in order to understand what's going on, I've got to understand this global system. And that means getting more information from countries outside of my own. It's very so upsetting to me how many people will tell me, you know, this is our problem in Turkey. You know, it's to do with, you know, the current prime minister. This is a problem in Sweden. This is a problem in Australia. We've just not been getting the global picture. Yeah, and I think that part of it comes down to the fact that it is so complex and it is systematically turning the attention of all of the world's problems back onto the consumer. It's, I mean, it's it, at first it had to turn us all into consumers rather than citizens. And then now all of our consumer decisions are what is going to dictate the future. Whereas what's really happening, and from our point of view, especially, and from, you know, I'm assuming from your point of view as well, is that um, they've created this illusion of choice so that we think that we understand what kind of systems we're buying into and we're voting with our dollar for certain things. But in reality, the system has been rigged to promote the expansion of big business and to promote the lifeblood of this global, econo global economy. And I guess one of the things that I was just thinking about as you were talking is like how localization... Um, it's so it's so complex because you have to battle this global system in so many ways in order to be able to survive and implement the localization. And I just we just have witnessed that with some farmers that we know that are just really struggling to like get this local economy that they want to have online because they're having to compete even even if it's like a sustainable product or a regenerative product, they're having to compete with these people who have vastly more money and they're export they're importing from across the world. And so, you know, what has what has your experience been over the years promoting localization what, while we're underneath this global system? Like how how can we create these sort of parallel structures in order to actually foster resilience? Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely key is to try to put out a holistic message about how the global economy works. So that, you know, the key message is we have to come together. We have to change the I to a we. And I had, you know, I had the experience of my book, Ancient Futures, was a bestseller in South Korea, a country that had been rapidly urbanized and technologized. And, and when I came back, a few years later, they were sort of saying, oh, there are all these young people who went back to farming and they're really struggling. And I was saying, but they didn't quite listen to what I was saying because I think I was making it very clear that the number one issue is this big picture activism. And so the, and the message is don't go at it alone. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. change the I to a we. And but what I'm finding is that it is unbelievably difficult to get people to think outside of the normal box of yes, yes, we want to support small farmers, we want to support small business, but no concept at all of the need to do that within a framework of a localized system. So typically what's happened is, you know, supporting Ben and Jerry's and celestial seasonings and I don't know if you know green and black chocolate. A lot of these that start off more human scale, more localized and do a fabulous job and then get all that support. And if there isn't a conception from the consumer and from the activist about the need to support smaller human scale businesses and systems, and we're not going to make progress. But part of that is to have a clear understanding that instead of going to the average consumer and saying, we need to pay more for our food. If you care at all, you should be paying more. We should be saying, look, your taxes are subsidizing old processed food from far away, or even fresh food that's flown to the other side of the world. Let's really wake up to this together and work together to create systems that can work for us. So, you know, what I would urge, you know, anyone who wants to farm, you know, before they go out and try to buy the land or, you know, set things up, they should be doing the education to try to find a a consumer group that is willing perhaps to pay more um, to help this process. But I think more than anything, I'm trying to urge in local communities, including right here where I live, that those who can afford to even just think about what can I do to make the world a better place? What can I do, you know, both for climate and for human well-being and health, personal health? Subsidize the new direction. Realize that it's going to take funding to do so. Use the current currency uh, for now. Don't opt for a local currency. They generally don't work. Uh, but what we've been able to do uh, is to start local food initiatives around the world. We helped to launch that also in America and in, in throughout Europe and here. And it's, I think particularly people could understand, again, the dominant system and realize that these little initiatives existing at all is a miracle because they're under such heavy pressure in the opposite direction. It requires so you know much blood, sweat, and tears from activists and people who really care and want to do this. So that should give us some inspiration. But again, I want people to be motivated to put effort into that educational com- component to bring up the numbers and and to do that with a yeah with a you know with a, a friendly compassionate approach, you know, not anger, you know, we have to do this, but an invitation to something that is so healing and that is so wonderful when it does happen. Yeah. You know, on this topic of communicating these things to other people, do you find that people have resistance because they assume a localized life way, um, 
they imagine it being a certain way, which is harder and uncomfortable and without all the pleasantries we have. But I, you know, I've heard you speak that we don't know, we don't even know what that really looks like. We don't know what possibilities of what comes next are. We're definitely not going back to the Stone Age. We can't do that. There's, you know, it's, it's a different world. And so we don't know what these many opportunities in the future can hold, but we also don't think about what we're going to gain. We don't think about the things that we have totally lost and that, sure, we may miss out on some fun things of modern society, but we're going to gain a lot. And maybe you can speak on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, this is, um, you know, where I keep looking for other language and I keep thinking, oh, maybe I can think of something that's better than local that will be more of an invitation because there's certainly that idea that it's going to be almost like a, a prison and very limited and very hard. And... Um, and at the same time, we can point to hubs or centers of the local around the world, which tend to be places where more ecologically minded, more community minded people, let's say, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, sort of hippies gathered, often in quite beautiful parts of the country where there was more nature and more human scale towns or, or cities, and even certain hubs, you know, certain regions of cities like Berlin or, you know, even Paris for a while, you know, there's certain areas where these people will come together and we can show how much more community there is, how much more connection. And we can show now huge, huge evidence, even what happens to your to your hormones, to your, to your whole nervous system, to the uh, vagus nerve, you know, that travels down. What happens when you do feel more connected to others? What happens, for instance, when you're singing in a group? We can now show evidence how much happier you feel and how good it is for your health. And so if you haven't tried it for yourself, please think about it and please become a bit more introspective try to really listen to when do I really feel better? Is it really when I, you know, I buy that new dress or I buy that, you know, new car? Isn't that very fleeting? What is it that really makes me feel good and happy? And I think now the, um, as I say, so much, so much evidence, you know, people walking, people who suffer from depression, walking in a shopping mall compared to walking in nature. You know, there's just, physical and and you know a lot of data now being gathered that shows that but very few people putting it together and as you're saying this is where the localization path is so wonderful because you are talking about living in a way that gives you those gifts that really do make you feel happier and we are talking about once you go deeper, we're talking about more creativity. We're talking about moving away from becoming a one-dimensional thing because you are what you do. You know, you're an accountant, you're a doctor, you're this or that, and that's what you are. And it's and as you retire, you feel like you're nobody. No, we're looking at a path where all of us will need to develop more skills. We're also talking about where we'll have more time for the music and the dance and the arts and the, the yoga, the working out in a gym or whatever, you know, that you like to do. 
maybe the time argument may be one of the most important now. So, you know, we need to elaborate, you know, to make it clear that local also means slower, which again doesn't necessarily sound attractive to people. They need to understand that it means that they have much more free time as the system slows down and that as the speed has increased with the mobile phone, with the internet and previously the fossil fuel economy, we've been running faster and faster to service machines and to have the techno systems intervene between us and our masters in ways that have been, you know, yeah. Hugely destructive. Absolutely. And we need to remember also, you know, that things like DDT or um, Roundup and, you know, the, the fungicides, the pesticides, these chemicals are a technology and they're all there to save time to eliminate the human from the equation. And what has that led to? Now I think we have a fair amount of awareness of what that is in terms of not just cancer, but Parkinson's, you know, uh, neurological problems. Um, there are studies showing the effect on intelligence, on sperm count, which should alarm people. Um, yeah. But uh, can I also say about that, that it's such a joy when it does work, which is not always easy, but when you do have a smaller diversified farm, with several people working on it, you you know you you actually see the benefits of that slower, more localized way. And let's remember that the smaller diversified farm is only possible within a more localized economy. You cannot deliver to the WalMarts and the supermarkets, and you know farmers will tell you how enslaved they are to those giants, how they are manipulated. And in those systems, they get maybe 10% of what we pay. Whereas in a more localized system, they can get 80, 100% of what we pay. It's just like, it's such a win, win, win. And it does break my heart that I still have a hard time convincing farmers of the need to, to shift. And, and I dream of tools. You know, I still keep dreaming of visuals that would show this globalized system and its impact and the more localized ones. I think they would have to use, you know, um, it can't be in real time. We have to concentrate so that people see the relationships and see the effects. So it means using animation or, and I still haven't been able to to do that, or I maybe this is what I should just focus on because I think it's, could really help. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of, that's kind of one of the things we're trying to do with our film is just like, you know, we don't know what the future is going to look like, but maybe we can start to, we can show people that there are people already moving in a direction and show the potential in it. Yeah. Absolutely. But a direction means local, you know, mm -hmm. it does mean, and it, what it means more human scale. It means, uh, you know, more ecological, it means more community-based. There are several characteristics. Um, but, you know, when you make those lines of characteristics, that can be a bit 
I'm not sure how valuable that is, but it, it is very important that it's seen in a holistic way, which is also what I'm trying to say about regenerative agriculture. I'm very worried about it. And it's so difficult because I have so many friends and colleagues who now are all using that language. And they are often, you know, small permaculture or biodynamic farms. And now suddenly they've shifted their language. And it's because of corporate influence, because Nestle and Cargill and Kellogg love Regen because it's not holistic enough. And so I hope you'll help with that. But it's it's such a challenge. It is. It's, you know, it's competing with the dominant uh, forces with the control over the language that's used. The if we're going to conceptualize it as this kind of opposing force that is creating the economic system, it's very good at making um, words either meaningless or mean their opposite. And we've seen that happen so quickly with the term regenerative agriculture, where the big players are all the big corporations are all now have regenerative practices. Um, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. And so I guess actually, can I say, I don't know what's worth, maybe I don't know if you can delete it, but my experience was that it was put out by corporations, and that's why it was a word that suddenly was everywhere. And usually, when that happens, there's money behind it. And I remember feeling the same way about Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Come back to the West, and suddenly everyone is saying this fabulous book. And I'm saying, Oh, I looked at it first of all, I was suspicious when I saw how everyone was talking about it immediately. And what that usually means for me, it's been sanitized for corporate consumption, meaning it doesn't threaten the ongoing escalation, which is so rapid and so dangerous, you know. But then also I just glanced through and I could see it was so clear. He was like most Westerners have been trained to do, seeing progress and economic development as an evolutionary path. And that's what he was doing very clearly. And yeah. you know, now in the meanwhile, people are waking up. Yeah, it's that yeah. that that notion that um yeah. we're already on the right track, really the only one right track. There's a a human destiny and we're we're on the way and any hiccups along the way are just kind of hiccups just some problems to solve but we're we're eventually going to get to that the only place we could go and that's such a hard uh perspective to shift around yeah and i guess that kind of leads into a question that i've i've been thinking about a lot recently like recently we've been talking a lot about the rise of ai and how that sort of threatens the sanctity of art and like human expression and these things that I think are very, very deeply human. And I was reading one of your essays and you said something along the lines of um, that as things become more artificial and as things become more separate, separated from what we kind of would recognize as real and human, that we're going to start to develop this sort of intuition about what human nature actually is. Because currently right now, so many people view human nature as a virus or we're just this parasite and that we just need to go extinct in order for the ecology to come back to life. And whereas it's so important if we actually want to make a functioning world, if we want to live in a world where we are in right relationship with you know, the land and the rest of the living community, one, we have to feel like we belong here, but we also have to have an, a correct understanding of what is human nature. And so 
I guess I would just love for you to talk about like what you think human nature is and why it's so important to to keep that in fr in front of our mind and not just take on these assumptions that have been brought in from the sort of global machine. Yeah. And again, I think it's been a long process, but I think the you know the the masters then the, these were the elites that were so benefiting from slavery and from this global trade they were all the time telling us that this was all a natural process it's just you know a core to their nature and so we've been programmed as we've gone down this path to believe that it is natural that it is evolutionary and inevitable and so that means that there's so little discussion of how, as this economic system grew and there was more and more power handed over to global corporations, in the modern era, using television and, and you know, particularly with the advent of television and then now later on, the screen, mobile phone, the internet, there has been this terrible, terrible impact on young children to essentially destroy the the truly universal human need or let's say let's put it differently so with the advent of television and the screens in the modern era this corporate machine-like system has been able to pervert what is truly universal to human nature to human beings which is the need to feel loved, connected, to belong. To convert that and pervert it into a need to consume. And in the way that operates, you know, I saw very deeply, very intimately in Ladakh, where, as I mentioned before, I saw people who were more at ease with themselves, more deeply self-respectful than any I had ever encountered. And I saw how in a very short period, superficial images of life in the West, of urban consumer lifestyles, accompanied by tourism, where people were coming in and spending a fortune every day, made even five-year-olds very quickly feel that their culture was shameful, backward, dirty. It's very interesting, by the way, too, how this you know, corporate consumer monoculture has spread with the notion of cleanliness. If you go around the world, you'll see, you know, all the ads for all the cleaning of your body, of the you know, floor, and this sanitation becomes this major issue. And we've been taught that, you know, we lived in this dirty way and we were much less healthy, when the truth is that by killing off so many bacteria and so on that's actually contributed to ill health and allergies because we've overdone it horribly. So there have been all these myths accompanying it that we we lived in, in this dirty, horrible way. And so but to come back to the perversion of, of what is human nature, it's just so clear that if we assume that most of us prefer to feel loved, appreciated and connected, and then we look at the evidence of who's actually deeply depressed or suicidal, we'll see that it's precisely those people who don't have that. So it all testifies to what is human nature. And it comes back again to what I was saying earlier, listening to what our true needs are, who are we really on the inside. 
and watching out for this constant propaganda that makes us feel insecure, that makes us feel left behind. And now, you know, what we're looking at is five-year-old children from Ladakh to America wanting to be a star. And so we're talking about competing with 8 billion people to be somebody. This, again, is a very clear reason for decentralization and for feeling at home within smaller structures and for feeling appreciated within human-scale structures. And, and I, you know, just recently here, we had very serious floods. And to me, this is such a, you know, significant bit of evidence that there were, so in these floods, what happened is there was severe and the community got out to help people. And it happened quickly and it was so clear that the community responded, of course, much better, much quicker and much more meaningful ways than when government and army came later. But the thing that happened was, I heard from a number of people that, who had felt very depressed that these were among the happiest days you know, for a long time. And it was so clear because they were so aware that they were doing something meaningful, something helpful, and they were being appreciated. It's not just about getting appreciation from others, but it's from knowing that what you're doing is meaningful and, and the combination of actually being in a situation where everybody was a hero, you know, the whole group was heroic and appreciated and appreciating each other, appreciating themselves. Again, this is what can happen when we relate in a human scale way. And again, what we're talking about in those crises is the kind of thing where we suddenly use all kinds of skills, where it's not about, are you a doctor? Or are you an accountant? Or are you a psychologist? No, suddenly you're human, and you're doing all kinds of things that in the dominant system don't even count. But when it comes down to it, you know, the things that we really need for our well-being and what we really need is to look after how we grow our food, and how we grow and educate our children, how we look after each other. And those are things that everybody can do. You know, when you do it in the more natural way, get away from the specialization that we've now been trained into. If you don't have gestalt training, if you don't have this degree, if you don't have that, you can't be offering something to someone who's depressed. You know, we don't realize how insane it's become with the specialization and the degrees that actually make you more incapable of relating in the way that we need to relate to each other. I hope that makes sense. I feel, you know, you're encouraging me to go all over the place so we're not following any sort of order. Do you think that matters? Do you think you will you sort it later or? I know this is great. This is what our audience is used to. And this is kind of how we like to do podcasts. Cause it's, okay. it's whatever comes up is usually the most probably important or stimulating at the moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I definitely believe everything happens for a reason. And so, you know, everything that you're saying is like exactly what someone needs to hear who's listening. So I think uh, it's great. I hope I'm, some, sometimes I'm not answering your question. I think I end up going off on a tangent. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you are. And you know, what you were talking about makes me just think about the way that we, 
you know, when I think about what is human nature, you know, it's like the cultural conditioning is like humans are bad, humans are a virus, humans do all of the, are, are so destructive. But then when, you know, you I, I, I think that there was a book written about this, but I haven't read it. But just basically it was someone showing how like during crisis, like the true human nature comes out so, so much just the way that you were describing. And it's like to me, I'm, that's so much more of an indication of, that human nature is good than looking to someone who is is like, you know, the CEO of Fortune 500 company who's like trying to, you know, who doesn't care about their workers or whatever. It's like that guy isn't human nature. I actually don't. I think that he is a victim in certain ways to the society and the, the, the structure as well. But like, I think that we all inherently know within ourselves that human nature is a good thing because otherwise we wouldn't be desperately trying so hard as a, as a society to try to figure out things like climate change and tr try to figure out the ecological crisis. I think that we're being really misled, though, and in so many ways. And I was thinking maybe we could kind of tie this into the, the, the issue of the global village and how you've you've written about how the global village it's like on its face it sounds so progressive it sounds like exactly the direction that we should be going like a, we're all in this together in this global way but the reality of that is a lot different it's it turns into this global monoculture and locality and co like cultural diversity sort of get lost in this sort of soup of you know, corporate run agendas. And so maybe, maybe would you mind talking a bit about that? Yeah, no, I think the, the global village is what was promoted by big business to say that what globalization was doing was linking us all up. And they were arguing that you never had had war between two countries that had McDonald's. But now let's remember that the rise of these corporations and their inability to respect life, the diversity, they're, they're absolutely structural sort of war path on, on the diversity of life means that they were actually carrying out war within those countries. As they brought in those McDonald's, they were destroying countless farmers, smaller restaurants, life that had been created from the bottom up. So I also just want to say that too, it's a really important, I think, notion that culture, as it evolved around the world, you know, we had this diversity of cultures, and that was born of a deep dialogue between groups of people in their environment, in their particular climate, and they, they developed particular forms of food and agriculture and different languages, even racial differences were corresponding to diversity of climate and ecosystem. Now, that diversity of cultures is what's necessary for us to maintain the biodiversity, the life on this planet. And that, let's remember, is the real economy. And that happens through collaboration between people, you know, to have structures of collaboration, embedded in different ecosystems. Now, what's happened with this supposed global village is it's a very nice word. Again, we've just got to look at the reality and the interconnections. What were they? They were people becoming dependent on global corporations instead of being dependent on more human-scale businesses in their own country. 
people that spoke the same language, people we might be able to actually go into the bank or the supermarket or whatever and talk to someone if you had a complaint about a bank account or a product. Now, as you become dependent on those global corporations, there's no human being to talk to. When you try to talk to them on the phone, you can sit for an hour pushing buttons, hoping that you're going to get a human being finally. And then when you do, if you're lucky, you get someone on the other side of the world who has no clue and not able to respond to the unique situation and, the, again, the uniqueness of your situation. So we're talking about structures that, you know, to call that a global village, where was the village? Well, you know, it's just amazing how language like that can fool people, you know? And, um, but of course people were not helped at all to look at what big business was doing. People were being helped by our war to look at what they were doing to cause global warming. And, you know, I've met him, he's not a bad person, but he was from the corporate world and he was talking about how we shouldn't drive our cars, how we shouldn't fly, <clears throat> saying in the meanwhile, he was promoting globalization, mm -hmm. which meant that goods were flying more than ever, which meant that mass tourism was being encouraged was literally in many countries, it was cheaper to fly abroad and stay in a hotel for a week than to stay at home. So the incentives that have been pushed on us to encourage this, you know, which of course again includes that everywhere in the world, you would find that local food would be more expensive than imported food. So the financial pressures and the psychological pressures to contribute to more pollution and to, and then in the meanwhile, be told you're to blame. You know, you're so greedy. You just want to hold on to your job and you want to go on your holidays in your airplane. And this is the problem. It is tragic what's happened because as people have been made to feel more and more guilty and not been exposed to the bigger picture, they often will become anti green and angry. And unwilling to think of making change, and and even you know more tragic, it's those people who are trying to make that change, which is going to have very little effect. Um, so, so the global village, um, you know, it's nice language, and all the time as this has been going on, the footprint of the corporate world has been increasing geometrically. So we really must alert people to what we call insane trade. Most people have no idea that the U.S. is exporting as much beef as it imports, that England exports as much milk and butter as it imports, that food is being flown across the world to be processed. From Norway, from America, from Australia, I know specifically those, they send fish to China to be processed, send it back again. But now I think, um, you know, we're, we're in a, a really, really tricky situation because COVID, the supply line failures, that big ship caught in the Suez Canal, now it's becoming pretty obvious that these global supply lines are not reliable. 
Even the Financial Times has now made three documentaries about the need to shift from global to local. And it's so scary because they are doing, just as with Regen, they're mixing in the good things and doing it in a way that makes it sound like it's all a big improvement. So what they're talking about is coming back home, but not stay in China or Mexico or Indonesia to use cheap labor. We're going to come back to America, we're going to come back to Europe, but now we're going to use robots and drones. And so they are doing high-rise agriculture indoor, you know, run by AI. I, I, It's not going to work. You know, it's... It's so resource intensive, mm -hmm. all this Green New Deal energy, so expensive, so resource intensive. But until we have a wake up, we're going to just have more and more major crises. I do think people are waking up. And I do think the obvious message, to me, the most important message is that continuing in this direction, with corporate, and we're talking about global corporations running the world, giving orders to our governments, continuing in that direction means that you are getting poorer and poorer. You are having to work harder to have a roof over your head, to have food on the table. At the same time, you working harder and harder just to stay in place that system uses more and more resources and it's destroying the living earth. It's the reason for climate change. So please join a movement of voices that recognize we have got to shift away from corporate rule. We've got to regulate these corporations and we've got to do it now. And we need to be showing, as many economists can do, but they don't get out. We, we have to liberate, you know, some aspect of the media. We've got to try, you know, to reach more people with the truth that the um, banks right now creating money out of thin air mm -hmm. to compete over minerals on Mars, the deep seabed, selling more and more of the war, you know, weapons for war, pushing devices at every level, from the war machine down to you and me, caught up in a politics of identity. Are you indigenous? Are you black? Are you white? What's your gender? What is this politics of identity, divisiveness at every level, this machine thrives on that. So got to come together across those divides with a holistic and clear picture. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, one of the one of my main critiques of the way that the climate change narrative has kind of gone about is that, like, on the one hand, it's it's very doom and gloom. It's it's this crisis that we'll never be able to avert. And it's going to be this calamitous thing. And it very, may, very well, maybe. But already people are, as you were saying, can't can hardly afford to to pay rent can hardly afford to yeah. pay for good food and 
when they hear about such a crisis and then the solutions that they're giving and, and they're talked and climate change, you know, is so talked about as just this one thing. It's just the carbon in the atmosphere. Whereas if you think of the ecological crisis, it becomes so much more overwhelming for people who maybe aren't in a privileged position to try to be able to hold the complexity of that. But then what ends up happening is then those people, because they're so overwhelmed with everything, they are almost structurally forced to believe in the big business narratives of, of in the Green New Deals, in these things that are really just going to perpetuate the same sort of growth machine as before. It's the same old story with, you know, probably way more mining than even before. And, you know, and, and, and so it's it's this this really horrible, like paradoxical situation that people are in. And yet at the same time, I can understand why people get so overwhelmed when they think it's like turning towards the local your local ecosystem what can you do for your landscape how can you get involved so that you're providing sustenance for yourself and your community like those seem like such big issues to tackle when there's a grocery store around the corner and it's just easier to kind of maintain the status quo but what you're talking about and i think what we're trying to convey in our film is that this is like a radical shift for 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 everybody but it's like necessary if we want to save to save ourselves and to save the world around us you know that this this machine is very suicidal in its functioning um but yeah yeah, yeah i guess if people could really know the truth that steadily with growth as it's calculated they've been getting poorer they're having to work longer and harder. And so I worked you know, with two economists who showed that very clearly in America and England. And it's just, so again, I think that topic, if more activists could be addressing that, do you realize that if this keeps going, you're going to have to work even harder. It's going to be even tougher for you. Please look at this, those billionaires. Look at how much they're earning and look at what you're doing. If we address that, I think we could reach a lot of people. The problem is that those people who have sort of talked about that, those sort of right-wing uh, leaders talk about growing the economy, you know, making your country great again for you, while they actually pursue policies that end up supporting big industrial practices that are not changing things. But if we come with a message that says, we're talking, number one, about you, and we're talking about just please taking a few minutes, and I'm saying the best way, you know, that we recommend is that you try to find a group of like-minded people, even if you just reach out to a friend or a colleague, ideally, you know, two, three, up to about 20, to meet in each other's homes. Now, we've set up groups like this around the world, um, but, you know, right now, yeah, it's this big, big problem as people have so little time. But if we can create uh, a message that says, we are offering you an intellectual journey that will show you how you can actually improve your life right now, feel better, feel happier, and do your best to change the world. You know, we're offering you here something that is unique. It's not 
This is not the environmental movement. This is not the climate movement. This is not about poverty in the third world. This is about you. And 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 I think you know that's what we're offering. And I I so I do believe that that has the potential. I believe you know to really wake people up. I believe from Appalachia to privileged people in California, the idea that our governments are subsidizing monopolies, and this is the main reason we have these problems, that idea has definitely would have wings. The problem is that the media is controlled almost 100% now by this corporate, what in effect is a mafia, uh, but again, the people who are doing it and the corporate think tanks, it just isn't a fully holistic, conscious thing. So therefore, it's not the evil that people imagine. You know, there is now this sort of tendency to think everybody in power is, a, you know, is a greedy, evil person. And the way I see it, it's obviously when you're earning quite a big salary, and you know, sort of have quite a lot of power, you're going to be much less likely to question this direction. That definitely happened. But I've also discovered, and I started reflecting on that again, like such a long time ago, when I realized that, and, and Chomsky has also talked about that, you know, that, but you know, when you got on television, it was sound bites. And, you know, there was already that time pressure and structural way that the relationship between reaching lots of people and reaching them with a meaningful message, you know, they were just inverse. And I've discovered, you know, that on the radio, I could at least have a bit of a conversation with people. By the time you got on television, it was, and the people were different. They were more shallow. They were more trendy. They were more, you know, speedy. And so, yeah. It's mm. so, really important that we focus on how can we create this alternative media, which is what you're doing, and 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 try to persuade other activists to do the same, basically? Absolutely, yeah. It would seem that the, the that conversation is is the most important thing right now. You know, we were we were speaking to somebody the other day and said, like, they said, you know, if we could, we could describe like if civilization collapses, you could describe it like a forest fire. But when there's a forest fire, that's when the seeds that have been in the soil for a long time get their chance to come out. But the thing is, you need to make sure those seeds are there. And I worry about if there is a food system collapse, if there are these kind of structural decay things that create havoc, such as COVID, you know, that we don't have those seeds there. We don't have the dialogue. We don't know what comes next. And all we know is to just try again. You know, it's like hit the reset button, civilization 2.0. And I, and it's, but that's also, I feel like people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that. Like, actually what we need to have right now is like just better conversations and better ideas exchanged. Um, that's a, that's, that seems to be a hard yeah, thing. I wouldn't say just, I mean, I'm, I'm only interested in those ideas linked to action, you know, linked to the idea that, and but but that the action that's so important now is communicating this need for exactly. essentially political and systems change, and the opportunity and the gift of starting right now to build the foundations through local food systems, through building more real community interdependence, 
those are essential for now and for longer term. But to do that with combined with putting the word out to get more people on board. Um, and to do it also, I think for me, it's important to say to people, you know, don't feel right now, if you're working for Monsanto or whatever, that you've got to, you know, uh, give up your job. Try to liberate your mind and try to give yourself a little bit of time to really question what's going on. And unfortunately, you know, many people who are dependent on those big businesses are very reluctant to look at their role in in, in the destruction. But, but I think wherever people are, it's not about suddenly stepping out. There is almost nowhere to go stepping out. You know, the rules and regulations are there. And um, it's about creating those newer relationships that are foundational for our well-being and for a healthy way of life. But also, as I keep saying, keep hammering the big picture to to get more real change on a larger scale. What what we're seeing is that local governments, mayors, and even sometimes regional governments are responding, you know, better than anything at the national level. And at the global level, virtually guaranteed, you're getting a worldview and financial pressures that are in the wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, uh, I hope this isn't too tangential, but this conversation around media and controlling the narrative and stuff made me think about the fact that we were kind of, before we started recording, talking about, you know, technology. And I wanted to bring this up with you because you made a distinction in something I was listening to between, you know, tools and technology and mega technology. There's so much of modernity is defended by like, but we have, we have rocket ships and all these things, but you make this distinction of, well, what are they, what is is uh, technology being used for? And is there appropriate technology? Is there small scale? Is there a distinction between tools and technology? I would I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I think first of all, I think it's really important to say that right now we've got this tool of Zoom and, and the internet and, and even the mobile phone, and we should be using it to get out this big picture message. And part of that big picture message is Let's do everything we can to raise our voices about pushing the pause button on accelerating or speeding up those technologies. They have supported the financial casino, which we should also talk a bit about. It's so, so dangerous what's happening there. They've supported that system of exploitation, speedy, rapid exploitation. You can sit as an investor in New York, and use this speedy technology to order the clear cutting of a forest on the other side of the world. And on the other side of the world, they'll use almost the same tools, whether it's palm trees or cedar trees or eucalyptus. But if you sit there and say, now plant a forest, you will not do anything but something destructive, which by the way is happening with this carbon narrative, which is completely false and which is bunging up monocultures where they don't belong, basically destroying ecosystems through planting forests. So the, this distinction really is what we should look at when we think about technology and think about the speed that it affords. But we now are in an urgent situation and we want in a speedy way to use these speedy communication technologies to get out the word about you know ultimately the need to slow down, 
the need to localize, the need to be clear that we do not want our taxes to subsidize 5G so that we can have driverless cars. We don't want technology to keep replacing people anymore. We are really worried about allowing robots already to replace humans in a major way. I mean, it's, it's one of the main reasons why the corporate world is so blind and stupid. They're relying more and more on AI to provide them with the information they think they need. Information that cannot, as I keep saying, respect the diversity of life, the individual, you know, unique human, the individual, anything. So um, we should be really clear that it's not hypocritical, that if we are critical of the mobile phone, if we want to be less dependent on it, it doesn't mean that we have to stop using it. We actually can, you know, be sophisticated enough to understand that even though we prefer a world where we weren't so dependent on the mobile phone, we need to use that tool right now to try to build up enough of a societal you know, agreement how we shift as groups away from such dependence. So for years, I've been trying to explain in Europe that if you say to Americans, you know, don't drive your car, it's like saying, cut your legs off. You know, the whole town has been planned around the car. There are no bicycle paths. The distances are so great. So it's, but that's again how the corporate think tanks have managed to manipulate thinking. And, you know, so if you, you know, if you at all care about this, well, you know, you should be walking and you shouldn't be using any tools or technologies at all. So we've got to deal with that. And then as we think about what kind of technology we would like, we obviously want to, for, for instance, I was saying earlier in agriculture, most of the pesticides and fungicides are technology. We want to use the natural products of the earth as much as possible. We want to support mixed farming where we barely, we can move very rapidly away from any of those chemicals. Once we diversify enough, we also have the safety blanket or, or, the sa or the safety, you know, the protection that if there is a hailstorm or if there is a drought or if there is a flood, you won't lose everything. And, and also in agriculture, we need to think globally enough not to become with, an, with this absolute idea that the only ethical position is to be vegan. We need to look at the fact that the majority of farmers on this planet have animals as part of the equation. And that when you have mixed farming and you have animals as part of those more human scale, localized system, the animals are never treated the way they are in the animal factories. And just the reality of an other way of farming is a very important part of the big picture because people are being brainwashed into only hearing about farming as the factory farming, which is completely toxic, cruel, disastrous for the planet, for our health, for the animals. No one wants that. But what are the multiple ways around the world that people actually farm for thousands, tens of thousands of years that actually work? 
Again, comes back to localization, diversified, adapted, and animals often part of the equation. I'm certainly not going to impose the idea on people that they have to eat meat or have to kill animals. I myself wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to kill an animal, I don't think. But please, let's wake up to the reality that the majority of farmers on this planet are being destroyed by a corporate idea of, of agriculture. Um, they're being destroyed uh, systematically by ideas that come as part of the whole climate rhetoric. They're being destroyed by the propaganda for technology. So there was recently the big thing on the BBC about how our food is no longer nutritious, how an, a, an ordinary carrot 30 years ago had much more nutrition than an organic carrot today. And this whole piece went into all the arguments you and I would make about the madness of industrial agriculture, the chemicals destroying the soil. And I'm waiting, what is the... What is this going to now lead to? Well, the end of a long, long article is we must monitor food for nutrition. Bang, we're going to kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of farms. Millions. Can't afford it. It's going to be part of the giant systems, and they're going to be monitoring for nutrition as they pump in, you know, in their hydroponics and so on, the right nutritional, you know, it's it's madness and it's tragic, you know, that so many people, you know, particularly in the West, who don't have experience of more traditional ways, uh, will will you know go along with this. So um, so technology, as I say, it's the chemicals. It's the I remember a psychiatrist at Harvard years ago saying to me, you know, you're right, you're right. I'm seeing now that. You know, these pills, same thing, speedy way. Someone is psychotic, someone is bipolar, pill. Because do we have the time? Do we have the human beings engaged in supporting an individual, understanding those conditions, understanding how it might relate to abuse, to trauma, to food, to lack of exercise? Do we understand? No, we don't have the time. Pop a pill might have side effects, might make you more psychotic and go out and kill people. That's what's been, you know, recognized, that it can often have an effect. It's just, it's so tragic because, you know, the psychiatrist who is in that position is in a system where, of course, he doesn't have time. And the same thing with the doctor. So the gaining of time the fact that on a crowded planet, 8 billion people, we have this overabundant, renewable resource of human beings. We have this overabundant resource of people who want to do meaningful work, who like to care, and who love to be cared for. We need this human liberation front, and it is liberation from the corporate yoke of a worldview that has trained us into believing that technology is improving our lives, is saving us time, is making life more comfortable and better when it is enslaving us in a torturous, 
competitive, speedy, lonely way of living. Uh, so, yes, we're talking about technological systems, which, you know, no individual sat down and said, oh, I think I want to invent um, genetic engineering. You know, I think genetic engineering would be a good idea to improve things. Didn't happen like that. We need to look at how the technologies, particularly in the last 30 years, actually 40 now, which is the period in which globalization has really taken off in its new form when the word globalization started being used. Uh, it's about 40 years ago, and in exactly that period, if you look at any of the data regarding environmental breakdown or most of the serious crises we have, you'll see it escalating with this process of giving more and more power to deregulated, out of control of very deregulated global banks and corporations to impose monoculture on the planet, standardized, mechanized, speedy, competitive, part of the war machine, part of the growth in the global economy, major part is the sale of weapons. So it's based on fear at every level. And, um, and again, you know, it's fear also, as we said earlier, of the bacteria of life, you know, it's all about removing us further and further. And now with this new idea that we're going to use technology and we're going to live forever, we don't need to die, you know. So we're talking about true madness, true um, madness in the sense of being so removed from the fact that we're not going to be doing anything if we kill this planet. And, you know, we are inextricably part of it. We're not going to be making these plastic humans who are going to live forever. It's just, it's, yeah. And the metaverse yeah. to replace the real world. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very well said. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So the, uh, the, there's so many things I would love to ask you about this, but time is limited. Please, and I no. and I don't want to make us linger on technology too much, but I... I I think about technology a lot because I, I I'm very frustrated with the current state of affairs. I mean, it, to me, it seems that um, the reason we want the metaverse is because we ran out of things to turn into capital. So now we need the, just the human mind itself to 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 turn into a, a form of capital. Anyways, so I'm, I'm I get really obsessed with this this com, uh, conversation around technology, and I'm I'm wonder if you have thought about you know in a world in which we have transitioned to localized economies. But yet we still kind of live in the 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 ruins of this technological society. There's going to be copper laying around everybody. There's going to be engines and motors. You know, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this great documentary called The Coconut Revolution. I know uh, it. I love it. I and know they, it. they turned the engine, they fueled it with coconut oil, and it they ended up kind of recycling a lot of technology, but in a communal fashion. Unfortunately, we checked back up on the story, and I think that corporations... I know. It's so tragic, but that brief moment, I was like, oh, that's, there's gonna be, you know, I love that moment of them recycling and making it um, better for the community. So I wonder if we have transitioned to a more localized uh, place, how do you see technology integrated in society? Well, I'd say, first of all, I'd like to say something about how we transition to more localized 
And there, I think it's really important that we realize that just like we want to make use of these technologies that are here now to communicate, in the same way we need those scientists who have been trained to create the genetic modification and the uh, you know the bioengineering and so many of these chemicals and tools that are out there to first of all they they are going to be needed to figure out how to break them down how to uh, make sure that they don't continue to harm human health and ecosystem health and also to identify where there would be elements that could be used for a transition. So I think for a transition, there's also use for fossil fuels. If we understood how incredibly wasteful the fossil fuel use is right now, as I say, to transport things back and forth. And remember that in the climate negotiations, there's no mention of trade. These emissions that happen outside of our borders are not even counted. It's criminal, you know, to have that going on. And yet most people don't know about it. So it's, it's one of the most important issues. So if you imagine that even fossil fuels were used for the benefit and the needs of people, the needs of people and the needs of ecosystems as we clean them up, there would be, you know, my... I'm quite sure that we wouldn't want to say we're not going to use a drop of oil, you know, in the transition. Because you and I will probably also be driving our cars for a while. But again, with more awareness, we're not going to fall for the trap of buying an electric vehicle. We're going to be aware that that's actually more resource intensive, more wasteful. So we would be uh, looking at a transition where we make use. Now, the ultimate goal of what would it look like, you know, in some kind of paradise? Well, first of all, we have to remember that life is change. And so there will always continue to be change and innovation. And there might be some real magical ways that technology could be incredibly helpful. But if we, when I look at how it's worked until now in terms of preventing us from having any exercise, because we end up sitting all day when you look at the, when again, you know, yeah, well, I guess let's say my idea based on my limited experience, but very unusual experience in Ladakh is that I would, my dream society, there would be more comfort. There would be a bit more energy to separate humans from the cold, uh, from uh, you know, possibly cutting down, you know, a little bit on the amount of of human physical labor. There might well be, well, we even, we introduced them in Ladakh. We worked with small-scale hydro, which by the way, small-scale hydro is one of the best forms of energy. It's had huge propaganda from big business in certain quarters to say it's not. But very small-scale hydro is one of the most benign ways of producing electricity. But we also worked with some solar panels, passive solar especially. It's amazing what you can do with passive solar. And at that level where we had a workshop and our colleague and, and later on colleagues, you know, Ladakis that we trained, were working with tools where you could actually see you know, the, the how they worked. And I really like technology. It can be very exciting, you know, to see it actually 
work and to know how it was produced and then to see the effect and to see how much power it produces. So within that context, I think, first of all, there's a new project in England um, called Black Mountain College, where they're recovering old crafts. And I think we'll have a lot of a lot of really exciting work to look at some of the earlier tools, ways of making bridges, ways of making boats that you could transport on your back. They're called coracles. You know, they're just an amazing wealth of technologies from around the world that are really exciting. I do want to warn against, you know, the Bucky Fuller thinking. For me, it's still too Western. It's still too much imposing an idea of a, a sort of monocultural spread of technology. Not at all saying that we can't learn from each other and might import technologies elsewhere, but but let's also be aware, like I was aware that um, using bamboo, uh, there, I don't know if you know the green school in Bali. That was where everything was made of bamboo, and it's white. It's so beautiful and amazing. But I discovered, and now I'm trying to think whether it was here in, in Byron. But anyway, that typically they find that if the bamboo is from the region where you're building, it's much more suitable. Because mm-hmm. I was just sort of importing a bamboo, thinking, yeah, yeah, we must have bamboo. And then in a different ecosystem, it aged much faster or cracked. So that kind of thing makes me very, you know, very alert to these differences that are incredibly complex. Like one of the favorite examples I also like to give is uh, in Ladakh when a farmer had lost three donkeys to wolves. And I had just been to another village and I said, oh, but, you know, they just had some young donkeys. Maybe I can help get you know some of them to you he said oh no that's on soft soil here on our stony soil you know the, the, those hoops won't be won't be suited to the stony environment and that was only a village like literally a mile away but it's down by the riverbed and he was you know higher up over stone so i think that knowledge and even how different mud bricks were made in different environments you know some needed straw some needed so yeah, just just that that. Uh, but I think the um, possibility of these more adapted technologies and exchange and import and export, but with that humility of respecting the unique situation. And we, you know, we're not just talking about ecosystems; we're also talking about cultures. So that respect for those. And um, but I could imagine innovation of all kinds, you know, continuing forever. Um, But to me, it would not be about going off to the moon somewhere. It would be about just a a more rich and flourishing life. And I do want to add that I get so excited when I see some of the small permaculture-inspired farms and the work you know, with natural building, you know, whether wood or mud or stone and the diversity of food being produced and how, how harmoniously and well it works. And I realized that to my knowledge, no culture ever 
has actually been trying to optimize this diversity or maximize it within optimal limits. And because from everything I know, most indigenous cultures made do with what was in their region and they didn't work super hard and quite happily, often moving over larger distances. They never had the brief of saying, oh, okay, we're on a crowded planet and because of blindness and stupidity, we've eliminated lots of species and we've created a mess. Now, how can we do the best, you know? And so this sort of goal of really experimenting with, with diversity, even including imported species. So if you haven't heard of Schumacher College, have you heard of Schumacher College? I think I have. I think I've heard that name before, yeah. Okay, well, it used to be pretty interesting. I mean, I, I, I was involved in helping to start it, and it's in England. Um, and if you come to Bristol, you should definitely come down, and you can probably stay with us. It depends on the timing. But we have a house just a walk away from Schumacher College because it was set up in the early 90s as a sort of center of more holistic thinking and... And after too long, we finally managed to get also not only holistic science, but then also holistic economics. I think now they've changed it to regenerative. Everybody's changing. Yeah, everything. regenerative. Mm -hmm. But then also now horticulture, which is for me one of the best programs. But nearby, there's someone who has been experimenting with the idea of, you know, with climate change and warming, you know, bringing in some other species and in a sort of permaculture style way he's done, name is Martin Crawford. And well, what I want to say is that with localization, whether it's technology or whether it's seeds and species or even importing bamboo or whatever, I'm saying we shouldn't be fundamentalist because there's been such a, a mess created that it would be fine to experiment, but with humility you know, with the import and export of alien species, we've seen how much damage that can create. But I've always been sort of in this middle ground between my deep ecologist friends and my permaculture friends, who on the one hand, you know, were saying absolutely no imports and everything from the outside was wrong as it were. But as you probably know, when you go back a few hundred years, there are certain alien things that have adapted pretty well. And so now, again, like this example I was just saying in England, bringing in some other species and so on to experiment, particularly with food growing. And if it's contained, you know, it's, yeah, it's not such a big threat to the environment. I think what you're saying is so important because this is sort of where we're at as well, is it's like, Anybody who's going to try to provide some sort of prescription for the way that the future is going to go, like, doesn't know what they're talking about. We're going to have to, like, the future is yet to be written. And I just love the way that you're talking about it because to me, it just makes me so excited. Like, there's something exciting about this time that we live in. And that's what I always want to try to convey to, like, my little sister and, like, the people that I, are in my life that I talk to that are really upset by the state of the world. And for the most part, I'm like, you don't even know how bad it actually is. <laughs> and you're already upset. Um, but for me, it's like the the experimentation and the creativity. innovation and creativity and community building and really like, you know, just 
implementing, taking, taking what works and discarding what doesn't, you know, it's going to be such an incredible process. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I am, I'm very optimistic about it personally. And so, you know, I just want to say thank you for, for everything that you said today. And especially talking about it in this way where it's like, it's, it can be flexible and dynamic and changeable. And that if we're dogmatic about it, then we're just going to kind of get stuck. And so yeah. we, we have, we have a lot of opportunity to adapt to something like climate change and to also heal landscapes and heal our relationships with each other and ourselves all at the same time through this sort of new way of thinking or different lens of thinking. Yeah, and again, I want to stress that that new lens so badly needs to understand that all humans are now dependent on two systems. And one of them is this living Gaia that we have co-evolved with, which we are inextricably a part of, which is just a complete madness to think that we're going to separate ourselves from it and create this other artificial world. But on the other side, Virtually every human being now, virtually everything that lives is threatened by a mechanistic, narrow perspective that's gone mad and that's been allowed to grow into such a powerful system. And now with this machine-like growth with the help of robots and, and algorithms that threatens almost everything that lives. And to move forward, we need a more global perspective. Because as I say, in order to deconstruct first intellectually and then practically that man-made system, and we are talking about a patriarchal system, we need to understand it better. And that requires more global exchange, more global collaboration and information exchange. And so one of the frightening things that's happened is that with the help of corporations, sensitive, intelligent, ecologically minded, people have decided they're not going to travel. Mm -hmm. And what's very scary is that the proponents of rampant consumerism are traveling more than ever and, and both with huge budgets to impose changes. So we really need to encourage that those who can take the time, if they can, to go into a different culture, particularly bridging the gap between the urban industrial and the more land-based, traditional, or indigenous. And that's why we in Local Futures forever have been trying to encourage that. We had reality tours to the West for more traditional people. We had reality tours from the West uh, for Westerners to have that experience. And we've been organizing international conferences now for the last uh, decade. And this year in Bristol, the end of September, we're having this big summit we're calling Planet Local. And I hope that people will either come or tune in to the streaming that we'll be doing with that and also rethink that idea that they absolutely shouldn't travel. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think okay. you're exactly right. You know, and this has actually been something that, you know, we've wondered about doing this project and, you know, have been fearful about, about criticism is like feeling the need to show the global scale of the predicament that we're in. 
while also, you know, recognizing that there is such a narrative that your carbon footprint is the only thing that you have control over and that if you're doing extraneous travel, then that you're a bad person. And, and I feel the exact same way where it's like, if we have if we have cameras where we can show the world what like what these different cultures are looking like or what what different conversations are having and if we can go around and give people that perspective then maybe they can maybe they can have a little bit more of an understanding of why it's important in a globalized world to understand the global system and the people in the globe that we all are dependent upon so yeah. that's great yeah well, thank you so much for this. I want to make sure, you know, we didn't leave anything out. Um, you spoke about this event that's happening. Is there anything else that the audience should know? Where can they find you? Yeah, well, I'd love them to come to our website. It's localfutures.org. And please sign up for our email updates. We send them out every two weeks. And you will get, you know, lots of information from around the world about this growing localization movement. And I should say, again, it's a global to local movement where we encourage that we engage in both resistance and renewal. The resistance being particularly now <clears throat> the intellectual resistance to, to essentially be brainwashed by very, very carefully manicured ideas that are serving to divide us and to prevent us from seeing what's going on. And they are very often being carried out by people who themselves believe what they're saying. It's really, uh, for me, very important to say that clearly. I don't think the problem is good people and bad people, but the problem is that there's just blindness from the grassroots to the pinnacles of power about how this huge global system works and and a very important point about that is when you look at that global system you'll see that the way to address it is not through a million and one ways of trying to contain it across the world it's about looking at the strategic thread and that's very empowering when you realize that if we focus on the central thread whereby those corporations and banks got so much wealth and power, we have a much more strategic and an easier way to deal with it. And basically they got that because they were getting more and more deregulation from governments. In other words, more freedom to operate without any constraints. Now is the time for us to wake up and say, no, they have to be regulated by democratically approved processes. We have to regain democracy, and that means controlling these beasts that are out of control at the moment. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Well, well, well said. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you Thank so you. much for doing this. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.